The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 4, 1 through 26. So I will be reading a section of the verses from the passage. It says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Jen, let's pray this morning. Father, every word we find in this passage is a priceless treasure because it's your self-revelation, ultimately. Uh, Thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are or how we can know you or live in the realm of your blessing. You've already told us in your word. And so help us, Lord, to understand everything we need to understand and to be changed in every way we need to be changed this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
A number of years ago, a suburban mom named Wanda Holloway of Channel View, Texas, wanted her daughter Shayna to make the cheerleading squad. Shayna had narrowly missed getting a spot on the squad the previous year, and things were looking pretty tight again this year. And it seemed as though Shayna's main rival for this coveted spot on the squad was another girl named Amber. And so the mom, Wanda Holloway, decided that maybe it was time for a little intervention to help her daughter make the cheerleading squad. And so she hired a hitman. Uh, According to detectives, Wanda at first tried to hire the hitman to kill both the rival girl Amber and Amber's mom, but when that turned out to be too expensive, Wanda decided it would probably be enough just to have the mom killed, figuring that the daughter Amber would be too distraught over the death of her mother to try out for the cheerleading squad, which would enable her own daughter, uh, Shayna, to make the cut. Fortunately, though, the plot was discovered before anything bad happened, and Wanda was eventually convicted and sent to jail. But what a story. (laughs) And I guess there are probably two lessons that we can glean from this story. Uh, Number one, watch out for those cheerleading moms, right? I mean, apparently things can get pretty intense. Some of you may want to put dance moms in that category as well. I don't know. Seems like things get pretty intense there as well. And, uh, but then the second moral of the story, which probably has more biblical basis than the first, is don't underestimate the depths of human depravity. Right? Because this story from Texas gives us a glimpse of the human heart and of the sinful nature that's actually within all of us. Now, obviously, most of us don't go around hiring hitmen to accomplish things that we want to be accomplished, but make no mistake, there is a a beast of sorts that lives within every human being. Ever since humanity's rebellion against God that's recorded in Genesis 3, an event that theologians call the fall, every one of us is born with a heart that's inclined towards sin. Now, even though we often learn to conceal our sinful desires and to express them in socially appropriate ways, there's still a monster within us that's thoroughly corrupt and even capable of horrendous things. And it's kind of like the Hulk or something. The monster is always there, even if it's not manifesting itself visibly. And we see an example of that in our main passage of Scripture today. Uh, This uh, passage takes place soon after Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God in Genesis 3 and is intended to illustrate the depths of human depravity. That's the main idea of this passage. Cain's murder of Abel reveals the depths of human depravity. And depravity, by the way, is just a, a, a word that refers to sinfulness or wickedness. And yet, depravity isn't the only thing on display in this passage. As we'll see, this passage also speaks volumes to us about the astonishing mercy and grace of God. 
But look first at how the story begins in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about why God regarded Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And yet the text itself seems to hint at the answer. Notice how Cain's sacrifice is described in the most generic of terms. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the, the fruit of the ground. But then, in describing Abel's offering, verse 4 is more specific and, and it's a couple of key details. At first, Abel didn't just offer any of the animals of his flock, but rather, which ones? The firstborn, right? The, the, he gave God the animals from his flock that were the most prized. Not only that, the text also specifies that his offering included their fat portions, which was the the most valuable part of the animal. And so it seems like the text goes out of its way to specify that Abel gave God the best of the best of what he had. So whereas it would seem as though Cain merely discharged a duty... Abel expressed true devotion. Whereas Cain simply went through the motions of worship, Abel worshiped God from his heart. You know, kind of like when parents will maybe sometimes have their children write thank you notes uh, for gifts that they've received. You know, one child might do the bare minimum of what's required and just write thank you and then sign it or or something like that. But then another child might go all out in creating their thank you card and spend a significant amount of time drawing pictures and making it colorful and writing a very heartfelt note to the person. And so that seems to be the nature of the difference between Cain and Abel in this passage. And so one thing we can glean from the passage, even right here at the outset, is that we should give God our best. God has no desire for supposed worshipers who simply go through the motions of worship and who, who do the bare minimum of what they think is required to you know, perhaps be a, a good Christian. So brothers and sisters, God, he doesn't just want like your church attendance. Right? He wants your heart. He doesn't just want your, you know, your financial contributions. He wants every part of your life. He doesn't just want to be one priority in your life or even your first priority, I would say, but rather the priority that encompasses all others. He wants to be the very center of your daily routine, the very center of your weekly calendar the very center of your personal budget, the very center of every part of your life. 
And he wants the external to flow out of the internal. He wants your heart. And to be foremost in your thoughts and affections throughout the day. Then continuing on in the passage, look at the second part of verse 5 through verse 7. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So since pictured here as a beast that's crouching at the door and ready to pounce at its first opportunity, and if Cain didn't master this beast and rule over it, he'd become its victim. In, in reading this, it's hard not to be reminded of what John Owen so famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And of course, this beast that was crouching at the door wasn't outside of Cain, but within his own heart. As Jesus says in Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The beast is within us. We gain additional insight uh, also into the workings of sin within us in James 1, 14 and 15, which states, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, the source of the problem is within our own hearts. A beast exists within us that can't be tamed and therefore must be overcome. As God says to Cain back in our main passage, you must rule over it. So was Cain able to do that? And are we able in our own strength to, to subdue the beast living within us? Well, as we'll see in just a moment, the answer is no. Even after God's warning to Cain about the beast crouching at the door, Cain still follows the sinful desires of his heart. As one commentator writes, whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his intended sin, even by the Lord himself. It's also worth noting the way in which Certain sins in particular, it seems, like the envy and bitterness within Cain can grab a hold of our hearts in an especially powerful way and spread like an infection within us and come to have a controlling influence in our lives. And so, honestly, it might be a good idea even this morning to search your own heart for any envy and bitterness especially, and renounce those things through the power of the Holy Spirit before they devour you from within, just as they did to Cain. The story then continues in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, 
Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Again, the purpose of this passage is to illustrate the depths of human depravity. Right? All of a sudden, in Genesis 4, we're not just talking about you know, eating a little bit of forbidden fruit. We're talking about murder. Right? And the murder is a particularly serious crime because it extinguishes the life of one of God's image bearers. We, we learned back in Genesis 1 that humans are unique in that we bear God's image. Therefore, any assault against a fellow human is ultimately an assault against God himself. And several chapters later in Genesis, God will declare the penalty that murder deserves. He says to Noah in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God declares that anyone who murders a fellow human being forfeits his or her own right to life. And the reason that's given is, again, that God made man in his own image. And uh, this is the biblical basis for the death penalty. Um, keep in mind that unlike many of the instructions given in the Old Testament, God doesn't present this requirement in the context of his unique instructions for Israel as a theocracy. Instead, God frames this requirement as one that applies to the entire human race. Anyone who murders one of God's image bearers forfeits his or her own right to life. Now, it's important to recognize that there are some situations in which killing another person isn't murder, like with um, killing done in the context of a just war or killing in self-defense or something like that. Also, there's a difference between intentional murder and unintentional manslaughter, but the prescribed penalty for true murder is death, the death penalty. And so uh, what we find in the Bible is truly a profound respect for human life, right? That's why the, this penalty here is so severe. It's because there's such a profound respect for human life. And since we in America today have inherited so much from the Christian worldview that's historically shaped Western society, we may not even fully appreciate just how unique this respect for human life is. And yet the value we place on humanity and on being human is actually something of an anomaly in history. Uh, listen to what a, a renowned sociologist named Rodney Stark has written, a man who, by the way, at the time he wrote this, uh, professed to be an agnostic. He says, perhaps above all else, 
Christianity brought a new conception of humanity to a world saturated with capricious cruelty and the vicarious love of death, right? Love of seeing other people die. Consider the account of the martyrdom of Perpetua. Here we learn the details of the long ordeal and gruesome death suffered by this tiny band of resolute Christians as they were attacked by wild beasts in front of a delighted crowd assembled in the arena. But we also learn that had the Christians all given in to the demand to sacrifice to the Roman emperor and thereby been spared, someone else would have been thrown to the animals. After all, these were games held in honor of the birthday of the emperor's young son. And whenever there were games, people had to die. Dozens of them, sometimes hundreds. The issue is spectacle, Stark writes, or the throngs in the stadium. Watching people torn and devoured by beasts or killed in armed combat was the ultimate spectator sport, worthy of a boy's birthday treat. It is difficult to comprehend the emotional life of such people. In any event, Christians condemned both the cruelties and the spectators. And as they gained ascendancy, Christians prohibited such games. More important, Christians effectively propagated a moral vision utterly incompatible with the casual cruelty of pagan custom. What Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. And that brutality uh, that was so prominent in the Roman Empire has been relatively pervasive throughout much of the rest of human history as well. You know, conquering armies, raped and murdered civilians, infants outside of the womb, infants whose parents deemed them undesirable were simply left to die. Rulers had the power to execute people for any reason or no reason at all. And there was just little regard for human life in general. You know, that's why I'm, I'm always a little bit amused whenever I hear someone say that they're, they're not sure if they want to have children uh, because, well, they just don't know if they want to bring a child into the kind of world that we have now. You know, and I, I just think to myself, like, what are you talking about? Like, this is way better than the way things have usually been in history. And so what changed? What made the difference? Well, Stark argues, it was Christianity. Again, he says, what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. And so according to this agnostic scholar, Christianity provided for society nothing less than a new vision of what it means to be human. It taught the inherent value of human life and the inherent dignity of being human based on the theological foundation of humans being created in the image of God. And so understand that human dignity is a distinctly Christian 
idea. That's why I'm also amused uh, by the, the bumper stickers that are promoted by some secularly-minded organizations that use the concept of being human uh, to promote their moral and political agendas. Understand that every time a secularly-minded person appeals to the concept of being human, they're actually borrowing capital, whether they realize it or not, they're borrowing capital from Christianity. Every time they make a statement that implies there's something unique about being human or that alludes to human rights, they're actually saying something that their, their secular worldview doesn't give them any compelling reason to say. Naturalistic evolution and its mechanism of the, the survival of the fittest doesn't in any way shape, or form lead us to embrace this idea of human dignity or human rights. Rather, these concepts derive from the biblical teaching that people are made in God's image and that human life is therefore valuable. So returning to Genesis 4, that's why Cain murdering his brother Abel was such a grave offense and why it's deliberately displayed here in this chapter as a picture of the depth of human depravity. Cain's murderous act was an assault not just on Abel, but on the God who made Abel in his image. And it demonstrates the downward spiral of humanity into deeper and deeper sin after Genesis 3. To borrow from last week's sermon title, this is all a part of the continued fallout of the fall. And so you would think that God would do something like strike Cain dead immediately, right? Even though God hadn't yet declared what he declares in Genesis 9 about murderers forfeiting their own right to life, you would think that God would still repay Cain for his murderous act by like, putting him to death on the spot. Yet amazingly, God shows Cain incredible mercy. Look at verses 9 through 15. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So not only does God show mercy to Cain by not striking him dead immediately, he even puts a mark on Cain to protect him from any who might harm him. Now, we're not told exactly what that mark is, but it was apparently something that was sufficient for Cain's protection. 
And not only that, but we even read in the subsequent verses, verses 16 through 22, that God blesses Cain with a family and an extensive line of descendants who would come from him, which was of paramount importance in that cultural context, probably even far more important than we can fully appreciate. And to make this entire display of mercy even more stunning, keep in mind that Cain never showed any sign of repentance or even remorse over his sin. At least none that's recorded here. I mean, in response to God's initial question of where is Abel your brother, Cain replied in a pretty snarky way. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then when God pronounces that Cain will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, Cain only exhibits self-pity. He laments, oh, my punishment is more than I can bear. No repentance, no remorse, not even an acknowledgement of guilt. Instead, just a snarky reply and self-pity. And what a guy, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a, a very appropriate Pittsburghese term for Cain that starts with a J, and that some might consider to be a swear word, so I won't say it here, but Cain is like the original prototype one of those. What a tool. Yet amazingly, here's the, here's the amazing part. God still shows him mercy, doesn't he? In fact, as astonishing as Cain's depravity is, I would say that God's mercy toward Cain is even more astonishing. I mean, there's an incredible and uh, important truth in that for us to observe a truth about God that might even be the most important truth in this whole passage. And that is that it's in God's nature to be merciful. His natural desire and inclination and disposition is to show mercy. Now, that's not at all to downplay the fact that God is holy and just and absolutely committed to punishing sin. I have no problem saying that God punishes sinful people by consigning them to, to hell for all of eternity, because that's a truth that's just found in numerous places throughout the Bible. However, I think we have a very good biblical basis to say that God's desire to be merciful surpasses his desire to inflict punishment. And I have to give credit at this point to Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, for helping me see this. Uh, just take Lamentations 3 as an example. As the title suggests, Lamentations is dedicated to lamenting the destruction that God brought to the city of Jerusalem because of their continued rebellion over hundreds of years. And yet, right in the middle of the book, in Lamentations 3, 31 through 33, we find this statement. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart 
or grieve the children of men. Isn't that last verse interesting? He does not afflict from his heart. So God is indeed the one who afflicts, right? The, the destruction of Jerusalem, in this case, was indeed his doing. And yet, God doesn't bring this judgment from his heart. Instead, there's a certain reluctance, we might say, within God to show judgment. Something within him recoils at the idea of judging people. Yet not so with his mercy. Instead, God longs to show mercy. As the Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, My brethren, though God is just, his mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to him, more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. In these acts of justice, there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. Goodwin then quotes God's statement in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven: I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So according to this statement, like God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, notice the scripture nowhere says that kind of a statement with regard to God's mercy, does it? Nowhere do we find God saying, I have no pleasure in displaying mercy towards sinners. Instead, over and over again, we see God taking great pleasure in the display of his mercy, supreme pleasure. And so, speaking carefully now to avoid any implication that there's some sort of a contradiction in God's nature, which there's not, but we might still say that God finds judgment to be far less desirable than mercy, and actually not desirable at all in and of itself. His most natural disposition and inclination is to show mercy, even towards sinners like Cain in Genesis 4 who deserve his judgment. And so make no mistake here, God is absolutely committed to upholding justice and pouring out judgment when that's necessary. However, that's not his heart. His heart, his deepest desire is to show mercy. He's reluctant to inflict judgment and yet longs to show mercy. And that's true for you today as well. I want you to know that that is God's heart toward you. You know, he's not out to get you. He's not up there just waiting for you to slip up so he can bring down the hammer on you. No, he longs. To show you mercy. And the good news of the gospel is that God's provided a way 
to show the mercy he longs to show, while at the same time without compromising his justice one bit. You see, the truth is that we deserve God's justice every bit as much as Cain does in Genesis 4. As, just as God told Cain in verse 10 that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, our sins likewise cry out for God's judgment. They demand God's judgment. And that judgment's coming, just as we're left to assume it ultimately came for Cain. Every indication uh, we have in the Bible is that Cain eventually died in his sin and suffered God's judgment for all eternity. Even though God showed him mercy in many ways during his earthly life, we have every reason to believe he ultimately died in that sinful condition and went to hell. And that's what we're in line to receive as well as a result of our sinful rebellion. Because God's righteous nature prevents him from just overlooking sin. Understand, if God overlooked our sin and just swept our sins under the rug and, and pretended that they never happened, well, then he would be unjust and unrighteous and therefore not God. However, because his desire to show mercy is so great, God did something that allows him to show the mercy he so longs to show, while at the same time not compromising his justice and righteousness. He actually sent his own son, Jesus, to suffer the punishment for our sins on the cross. Understand, somebody had to suffer that punishment. And usually, that somebody would be us. Yet in his mercy, Jesus bore our sins. He bore the punishment so that we'd never have to face it. That's why Hebrews 12, 24 tells us that we can come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of who? The blood of Abel. Because remember, the, the blood of Abel, what's it doing in Genesis 4? It's, it's crying out for vengeance and judgment and justice. But the blood of Jesus shed on the cross speaks a better word than the blood of Abel in that it proclaims forgiveness and redemption and eternal life to all who put their trust in Jesus as their crucified and resurrected Savior. And I want you to know that redemption and that forgiveness are available to you as well this morning. Regardless of what you've done or how rebellious you've been, God offers mercy to you. His offer of mercy that he longs to show extends to you today. As Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says so powerfully, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, 
for he will abundantly pardon.